Welcome to the Sheila Kama Extractive Podcast. My guest today is Dr. Ola Bello. Ola is the Executive Director of Good Governance Africa, a research and advocacy organization with offices in Nigeria, Ghana, South Africa, and other parts of the continent. Previously, Ola was the head of the Cape Town office of the South African Institute for International Affairs, as well as the program head for the Institute's Governance of Africa's Resources program from 2012 to, to 2015. Ola has a PhD from Cambridge University. Ola, welcome to the Sheila Kama Extractive Podcast. It's lovely to have you with me today. Thanks for having me. So I thought as we talk about this notion of citizen equity participation in uh, extractives, given the extractives, especially petroleum's footprint in Nigeria and Nigeria's notion of uh, indigenous that it's worth you giving us some historic context how did we get here in nigeria and and what are the issues that we have considered in this space well thank you sheila i think the the, the most important thing to say at the outset is that you know nigeria's um indigenization policy or what you might call policies on promoting local content and local participation in the extractive um, sector, surprisingly um, are commended in, in many international discussions in terms of decisive achievement um, that the country um, has recorded. Um, most importantly, in terms of pushing an increasing number of Nigerian business people to become um, significant players in the country's oil and gas sector. Um, but having said that, it's clear that um, this progress um, is um, it's been minuscule in, you know, relative to what is um, actually um, possible. Um, so I tend to think a lot of the progress that have been made have been in the form of um, those institutional structures and learnings. Um, that Nigeria, Nigeria has been able to accumulate, um, especially in the last um, 30 years or so arising. Um, challenges continue in the form of, um, you know, inadequate um, capital to support, you know, domestic participation um, on the level that I think is possible. And there are significant opportunities opening up now with the global um, divestment movement. Um, but also challenges um, such as um, limited capacity on the part of Nigerian enterprises, but also the lead um, institutional regulators, some of which I'm going to be mentioning um, as, as we proceed with the discussion. So progress has been made, um, but um, it can be a lot better. Um, so in, hmm. a long, in the longer historical context, um, Nigeria's um, local participation is something that has been intricately bound up with the struggle for true independence. Um, if one could put it that way, you know, oil in Nigeria was discovered in 1957. Um, solid mineral deposits um, had been mined in the country under, the, under British colonial rule for decades before that. Um, and um, once Nigeria secured its independence in 1960, um, the new Nigerian-led government was notable um, in its very activist posture 
on what they called indigenization. Um, you know, uh, taking an increasing number of um, roles within business and government and elsewhere um, out of the hands um, of their former um, foreign um, holders. Some of the British expatriates that were left in the country in the immediate and um, post-independence era and um, trying to ensure um, that these positions um, go to Nigerians. So we saw a raft of um, legislations um, passed through the, the first era of democratic rule in Nigeria, which lasted roughly from 1960 when the country became independent until that um, first republic was truncated um, in the 1966 um, coups. Um, so in 1961, for example, Nigeria legislated um, that, you know, positions within government uh, must necessarily, um, you know, be in the hand of Nigeria. So you had um, the so-called um, expatriate allocation board um, regulation of 1966. Um, and shortly after that, um, you had a much more sweeping um, law passed in 1968 called the Company's Decree of 1968. The, the end objective of both is to ensure that at least on paper, um, Nigerians must be the primary holders um, of um, positions within Nigerian government institutions and within its um, diverse economic institutions. Um, those were followed in 1969 by the Petroleum Act of 1969. And I think this itself reflects um, the, you know, the increasingly important role of petroleum in the national economy. As we speak today, people think of Nigeria as, um, as an oil state. It's a story that's partly true and partly untrue. It's partly true because much of government revenue, about 90% of it, still come from Nigeria's oil and gas extraction. But in terms of the broader economy, an almost $400 billion economy um, with oil, I'm accounting for just about 10% of the gross domestic product. Um, so we've seen a raft of in initiative and, and lawmaking activities um, over these several decades. It's been progressive learning. The end objective has been to put more control um, in the hand of our Nigerians, ensure Nigerian equity participation and ownership in those sectors, use those sectors um, to promote Nigerian um, skills development um, and, and all of this um, initiative. Um, but today, um, I think it's been top heavy. We find Nigerian companies that are important players in the oil and gas sector, Seplat, for example, um, produces about 3% of Nigeria's um, you know, gas production. That's significant considering that it plays in this, um, you know, in this field with oil majors like Shell and um, and and, um, and and any. Um, but you know, um, the, the, the push for Nigerian participation has been top heavy. It's not something that has devolved evenly, trickled down, such that the average citizen um, feel um, that they are legitimate stakeholder um, I mean, in what is happening in Nigerian oil and, and gas um, industry. So this is the evolutionary path that I think Nigeria's um, you know, push for indigenization has followed. And I can also then speak to um, specific uh, measures that have been introduced over the years. 
and um, draw some judgment on where I think I've been successful and um, what still needs fine-tuning. Hmm, that's very helpful context. So let me follow through on a couple of uh, issues. Uh, my sense is that you think Nigeria has taken the right steps in the right direction, but that Nigeria can do better. And more than once you have used the term top heavy. Can you define that for us? What do you mean about top heavy? And why do you think that in part leads to the suboptimal outcomes? Um, I think it's top heavy because um, we've taken a ride from the top. Um, I think in 19, you know, in 1972 with the Indigenization Act, um, Nigeria simply demanded um, that companies um, operating in Nigeria, um, you know, in the oil and gas sector, um, must ensure that a certain percentage um, of their um, workers must be Nigerians. Those companies can still be majority foreign owned. Um, we've now moved, you know, um, in, you know, during this third, um, the so-called third republic, Nigeria's era of democratic rule, which started in 1999 up until today. Um, in those two plus decades, we've moved into a context where the ambition, um, I think, has been much bigger than it was in the past. It's not simply a question of having Nigerians in management role in a lot of the oil and gas companies, but you know, promulgating laws um, that specifically require that in certain sectors, um, for example, the Cabotage Act, you know, vessels plying Nigerian water, supporting activities in the oil and gas industry, must be Nigerian, majority Nigerian owned. We've also um, embarked on specific um, initiatives to ensure that these Nigerian entities are supported to succeed in their activities. So for example, we created a so-called um, National Context Develop um, Content Development and Management Board, NCDMB, um, you know, which has been um, the lead um, you know, regulatory um, agents, um, you know, in terms of promoting Nigerian content and participation in the oil and gas sector. So what we've, I think, succeeded in doing for the most part um, is to enable Nigerian companies, um, you know, Nigerian entrepreneurs to become owners um, in, in, in the oil and gas sector. But when it comes to the nitty gritty, um, you know, of, of actually um, linking, you know, the oil and gas industry to the broader economy, we've not succeeded much um, in, in, in this regard. So, for example, there is the so-called um, um, forward linkage policy um, of Nigeria, which I think try to link what is happening in the, um, in the oil and gas industry to broader parts of the economy, social cement manufacturing. Um, so big players we see in those sectors, um, like um, you know, in cement manufacturing, Aliko uh, Dangote's outfit, the Dangote conglomerate, um, its competitors like Buar, um, they, they've been very successful, um, you know, so on, on cement and, and, you know, and, and similar manufacturing activities, 
it's predominantly Nigerian, you know, companies, um, you know, that that are that account for the for the giant share of outputs in those sectors. In the oil and gas sector, um, it's still mostly the foreign majors that control much of, you know, um, account for much of Nigeria's oil and gas production, even as we've seen indigenous companies um, progressively emerge to become significant players in those sectors. But when you look at the nature of these companies, um, they themselves oftentimes um, have, have operated in partnership with those oil majors. Um, Sometimes they also take um, on what are classified in the oil and gas industry as marginal assets. And increasingly those are those are those have turned out to be the um, you know the more troubled assets that are um, located onshore where many of these um, oil majors like Shell have run into problem um, over many years, including the well-known um, Ogoni case, um, where Shell was alleged to have been um, you know, complicit with the um, the military regime of General Sani Abacha in Nigeria in the um, in the late 1990s, when Ogoni activists um, were extrajudicially murdered um, by the state. So these companies are relinquishing a lot of these um, troubled onshore oil assets, whilst they've been doubling down um, on the more technically demanding, much larger reserves um, in the offshore waters. Um, so if you look at the nature of the Nigerian companies that are taking over those operations, um, you know, I think it's something to be celebrated that they are they're becoming quite significant players in those sectors. Um, but even within their own management, you still find that um, you know there is still um, a, a broad reliance, you know, on 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 external expertise, particularly at the cutting edge. You know, when it comes to um, you know some of the more you know technically demanding operations. I mean, that sector. I think the push for Nigerian and uh, indigenization in that sector has been only you know partly successful. Um, so I think um, the focus has been on ownership, not so much um, in terms of um, broad citizen participation um, in those sectors in a, sense, in a way that gives you the sense that the average Nigerian considers him or herself um, a legitimate um, you know, co-owner or a stakeholder of some sort um, uh, in this sector. Um, I think this is not a criticism as such. I think it's part of this evolutionary process of learning and doing together and doing things um, in conjunction um, with the former, um, you know, um, you know, principal players in, in the oil and gas sector, the majors, whilst we've um, progressively over the years um, encouraged them to relinquish um, an increase in quantum um, of control to allow Nigerian owners and skill um, owners um, to, to participate um, in those sectors. So we must go from merely encouraging Nigerian companies to emerge to a situation where uh, much of the wealth being created in that sector is something that meaningfully benefits um, the rank and file um, of, of, um, of ordinary Nigerians. This is the sense in which I think it's been top heavy, but I do see it um, 
you know, um, as a continuum, um, as as a signpost on the way um, to to the ultimate destination that we want to reach. Mm, that's wonderful. So you you said a couple of things I want to follow with, uh, and and one the first I want to follow up on is the notion of a destination. Earlier on, you described that destination as true independence, which is mastering one's destiny. And in the context of, uh, say, Nigeria being a big oil producer, uh, mastering one's destiny, as you define it, is, uh, for instance, not just be top heavy, but really uh, being part of the value chain uh, and all the linkages that emerge. Are you suggesting that if, if we take a political view of the issue, that in the absence of Nigeria uh, mastering her destiny in this petroleum space in a, a critical way, that true independence would elude the Nigerian? Um, I, I think, um, frankly, this is not the way that you know the the the, the people who um, you know make policy in Nigeria define this discussion. So one of the interesting things for me is that whilst we've been talking about move to um, indigenization, um, it also unfolded in a context where Nigeria does not you know fundamentally. Um, you know, treat foreign-owned companies um, different than companies that are Nigerian-owned. So I refer, for example, to um, to the question of taxation. Um, companies operating in the Nigerian oil and gas sector are evenly taxed across the board, regardless um, of whom their owners are. Um, the the more, um, um, the more um, favorable treatment that Nigerian players have enjoyed have been specifically um, on the question of local procurement and, um, and local content. Um, so, you know, such that, um, you know, the, the, the rule, um, you know, within the establishing act of the Nigerian content development and management body such that if a foreign entity were bidding for a country contract in Nigeria in competition with uh, Nigerian controlled entities and Nigerian ownership is defined as at least 51% majority ownership in a company. Um, if a Nigerian a so defined Nigerian company is bidding against a foreign one, um, the Nigerian entity, if it can be demonstrated that it has um, comparable expertise and to that foreign entity should be favored if its um, quotation is not more than 10% in value over and above what the foreign entity um, is, is, is proposing. Um, so I think, you know, what this tells us is that, you know, um, the way Nigeria has legislated in this sector is not that radical when you compare it to what we've seen in so many other contexts. Um, and I think this is probably sensible um, because the, my feeling is that a lot of the um, foreign owners, I mean, the Nigerian oil and gas sectors um, do think that um, Nigeria's leadership across 
these several years, um, is willing to, to work with them. Um, also partly because we moved away from a situation where at independence, um, Nigeria was just paid a one-off fee um, for oil and gas resources um, discovered um, in Nigeria to a situation where Nigeria has a much more dense, much more varied, much more sophisticated mode of relating um, to these um, foreign you know, oil companies. So the Nigerian state is in joint venture with a number of the oil majors. Um, the, the Nigerian state, um, you know, is also um, in, in other form, forms of partnership, you know, that one might require, um, one might describe as win-win as, um, as um, sort of relationship. So my, my key point is that um, Nigeria has always wanted to regulate this sector in a way that I think um, is both um, consultative and um, build on engagement rather than adversarial. And in that sense, I think the distinction between domestic and foreign-owned entities is not so sharply drawn as um, as might be the case I mean in some other context and most recently we passed the Petroleum Industry Act which languished in our parliament for more than 10 years before it eventually became law um, just this last month and I think part of what was pushing that is the fear that Nigeria would miss out unless we we create more um, regulatory certainty and enshrining law um, attractive terms that would encourage a new round of investment um, in the Nigerian oil and gas sector by especially the foreign um, companies. You know, as I said, with much bigger, broader capital base than many of the Nigerian entities can muster at this time. Um, so the distinction between domestic and foreign, not so sharply drawn, and I think the driving element in, in that is that Nigeria wants to regulate the sector in a way that's not antagonistic, um, you know, of its, um, the oil major important partners um, in, in the development of the Nigerian oil and gas sector. So as I said, it's not, never been a question about losing you know, once independence, you know. Um, when the need has been there, I think regulators have been assertive enough. And I think that's evident in the way the Nigerian Content Development and Management Board operates. Um, it's been able to carry along a lot of the players in the sector, both locally and foreign owned. Um, but when it comes to things that I think um, the industry might find as not very helpful adversarial, um, Nigerian regulators have not done too much of that because over the long historical times, the modus operandi has been one of consultation and engagement and joint learning um, all along the way. Hmm. So uh, I, I want to say, I want to uh, agree with you on one point because I think uh, it's not so uh, self-evident. And that is uh, how much a front runner and how effective all be it with room for improvement, Nigeria's uh, National Content Development Board has been. I remember uh, when it was first established under the leadership of uh, Engineer Nopa, who was a, a Tory force himself. 
And uh, I, I think the structure of uh, the Nigerian Content Development Board and the extent to which it has real bite and that it is institutionalized. Whereas in many countries that I've seen uh, with policies on local content, they stop at the policy stage, but they don't yeah. really institutionally empower it. The Nigerian Content Development Board is the exception. It has real resources, it has real cloud. And I think we see in the difference that it continues to make. Uh, I guess what uh, I am not certain of is after the first 10 years, what can we expect? I'm looking for the Nigerian Content Development Board to take a real, uh, if you wish, second level uh, step. Uh, and, and, and that, you know, we have achieved something in 10 years. Uh, the, the next big question for me is what does the next 10 years look like? Uh, it, it, it clearly cannot be business as usual. I think this is an excellent question. Um, my, my feeling is that we are at a very, very interesting juncture here. Um, the, uh, you know, part of, you know, what's implicit in your question is, you know, what's accounted for the modern success I've talked about and, you know, what would, um, what would be the driving force for success um, in the future. I think one of the most important thing that Nigeria has done, which has helped um, to give real bite to its push for local content and local participation, is to actually put the round um, pegs in the round holes. Um, so the inaugural um, head of the Nigerian Content Development and Management Board, whom you refer to, um, from him we've seen a succession of leaders of this body who have been um, actors from within the industry, you know, senior executive or, of, or former senior executive of oil companies who have seen and experienced, um, you know, issues around local content play out on the corporate side. So I think when they've come on the regulatory side, um, that has um, sort of tempered, you know, their expectations and uh, shaped their worldview um, such that um, a lot of what they're trying to do um, finds acceptance. Um, within the industry, um, among the broad industry players. Um, I think that's very crucial. Um, you know, part of the reason why it's been successful is also that um, the, the learning process has been evolving, resources have been increased and made available um, when it's needed. And I think this is very important for the success of a regulator. Um, but in terms of the, the crux of your question, where do we go from here? I think, um, you know, a lot of interesting possibilities now open up. Um, industry in, in almost every national context have often felt challenged when regulators ask them to do the impossible. Um, so it's, it's fine to push for local participation um, but um, when there is not enough um, domestic capital accumulation for local players to come on board and participate, 
um, that becomes very diff difficult for, for an industry that may well not be in a position um, to, to offer free carry interest um, to, to domestic players. I mean, the way they're able to offer to government sometime at the outset of projects. Um, also, the question of um, inputs um, like um, electricity, um, you know, internodal transport infrastructure, some of the important things that you really need um, to, to make um, a local content um, policy really take on a life of its own and take off. Nigeria is challenged broadly by a lot of that still. Um, but where those challenges have shown um, themselves, um, it's been a softly, softly approach working with the industry um, to, to see how the, those blockages um, you know, are, are deblocked. Um, and I think that's important. So you know, this is possible um, when you put the round peg in the round hole, people understand the pressure that industry feels. It would be interesting to see how this iterative learning process between regulators and key industry players, which I think has served Nigeria's indigenization push well over the past um, decades, how that unfold as we see major changes happening within the oil and gas industry nationally, but also globally. Nationally, because you now have, um, you know, simply emerging um, in Lagos, where I'm sitting, the world's um, longest single train, you know, um, oil refining facility, um, the one being built by the um, Aliko Dangote um, conglomerate. Um, I think that shows is a, a level of maturation, um, you know, within the Nigerian oil industry, that you have a major domestic investor and being able to invest so heavily in the downstream oil refining and distribution um, you know, um, network. Um, this, I think, will completely reorient Nigeria's political economy, whether we like it or not, over the next two, three years horizon. There's been a number of postponements in terms of when this facility becomes, um, you know, start to produce. I think the latest forecast is that by 2020, 2022, which is next year, um, the facility will begin to churn out yeah, its first um, barrels um, of refined um, petroleum, you know, from this time, um, 450,000 um, barrel per day um, oil refining, um, you know, facility. Um, also integrated into it uh, major components like the, um, the, the fertilizer manufacturing plant um, integrated into that project. So I think all of this will reshape Nigeria's political economy. We've struggled over the last three decades with so much leakages in the system, um, with a very destructive system where we're exporting crude um, oil. Um, to be refined into a um, finished product, which is then reimported back into Nigeria in the process, um, leaving a lot of back um, door um, for corrupt activities um, through the opaque um, oil subsidy program that the government, um, you know, um, find, find it, it, itself, um, you know, um, having to shoulder at a time when, um, you know, um, I think the, the, the financial resources are broadly dwindling. 
So um, the turn-on of this facility, I think, will reshape Nigeria's political economy in terms of being able to refine, you know, um, oil products domestically, um, retaining a lot of the value along those value chains in the way you describe it, and also helping to plug a lot of loopholes. Um, in terms of Nigeria's own accretion of vitally needed foreign reserves, which I think a country that's serious about diversification needs, um, you need those reserves um, to be able to you know, purchase um, capital goods um, um, that we do not manufacture in Nigeria. I think the oil facility would help to, to solve a lot of problems. It would then be interesting to see how the Nigerian Content Development and Management Board um, is able to capitalize on these opportunities that are opening up um, to really put more trust um, into Nigeria's um, push for, for local participation and, um, and local content. I think so much opportunity is going to be opening up as a result of this. Globally, I think we're also being led almost inexorably in the direction where we have to think more about local content um, because there is a global divestment from hydrocarbon uh, resources that I think is now fully underway. Unsurprisingly, we've seen some of the majors relinquishing some of the imaginary you know, reserves in the way I described earlier to Nigerian you know, um, you know, um, Nigerian companies that are interested in doing in purchasing those resources and operating them. Um, so, as as this divestment and reshaping of the global energy landscape um, proceeds, um, you know, what are the opportunities there that the Nigerian Content Development Board can help to lead? Nigerian players to fully take advantage of, um, you know, it's a, a sort of next level, um, you know, um, progression on some of the sizable achievement that I think they've um, achieved since 1999. Um, it would be interesting to see um, how they position um, to, to help Nigeria um, maximize the opportunities that I imagine there are downside risks too. And I think they, they should have something to say about how we manage those downside risks, not least of them, the risk that uh, a lot of resources may become stranded. Gas is emerging as a major bridge to the greener energy future we're all talking about. The future for petroleum, particularly the export component is not so certain. So, you know, in what creative way can regulators and um, the, the, the players in the domestic oil and gas sector um, work together um, to, 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 to take advantages that are emerging in this respect and to minimize um, some of the damages or downsides um, that are feared, um, you know, would, would emerge uh, and, and constitute headwind for, for players in the sector in the, in the next um, one decade or so horizon. Hmm. So, uh, you said a lot. Um, we don't have enough time in the year to delve into a lot of the important points, but I'm going to pick on a couple. I mean, it's flattering and pleasing to see the investment that the Dangote Group has made into this huge uh, facility. Uh, it, it also uh, happens at a time where you could say on face value that, you know, the company is basically going against gravity. Uh, at a time when the world is uh, uh, 
moving away from petroleum. Uh, hopefully, it's a statement of commitment first to Nigeria and then mm -hmm. to fossil fuels, and that it has the backing of the government, uh, because the government is, of course, going to Glasgow, and, and hopefully uh, not at the expense of Nigeria's oil and gas resources. So, so that's just a thought uh, and, and an observation. But it also says to me that notwithstanding our view that Nigeria can do better, the very fact that we have this mega development must be testimony to one, Nigerian entrepreneurship, two, that there's a level of maturity in the uh, Nigerian business, but specifically in the petroleum sector, because how else do we get here, if you see what I mean? And, and so I do wow. think we, we do have to acknowledge uh, that a huge part of what we are seeing speaks to that, because after all, Mr. Dangote's uh, stock and trade originally was cement, and cement itself made from concrete is made from rock. And so, you know, in the extractive space, he has uh, very much demonstrated that uh, you know, citizen participation can be both substantial and meaningful, wouldn't you say? I, I think so. Um, Dangote's story, I think, is also the story of Nigeria's success in pushing for greater domestic participation at the commanding height of the Nigerian economy. Actually, without Dangote cement, there would have never been the Dangote uh, refining um, company and without um, you know Dangote sugar and um, and flour mills um, you know this um, this impressive um, you know facility that's about to be completed um, would never have um, have come into being. Um, I talked earlier about um, Nigeria's attempt um, to to very straightforwardly ensure linkage you know between um, it's it's um it's um oil and gas sector and specific um you know niches within the broader economy. So the the 2002 regulation I talked about the backward integration policy um was aimed specifically at cement, and it simply said that um only although Nigeria still needed to import cement at that point you would be granted import license only against um, you know, your demonstrated um, willingness to manufacture some cement locally. So people could not import cement unless they are showing that they are also manufacturing um, domestically at the same time. Policies like that um, have been vindicated over the years. It's what's emerged. It's what allowed the emergence of Mr. Dangote as um, Dangote Cement as the largest largest cement manufacturer, um, not just in Nigeria but also across Africa. Um, it does have some domestic competitors um, in that sector, like Bua, which is also Nigerian-owned, and Lafarge Housing, which is um, foreign-owned, but the company also in many significant respects, um, I think, indigenized um, in the Nigerian context. Um, so a lot of what's been done in terms of what I consider as consultative promotion of local content um, initiative has opened up the opportunity for players like Dangote um, to emerge.
And um, I'm optimistic um, that this sort of um, joint learning between regulators and players, you know, at the commanding height of the economy is something that would continue and will continue to serve Nigeria well um, for, for the foreseeable future. Um, it's interesting to see that, you know, the Dangote refinery is not just um, a wholly private sector owned um, facility now. In the last, um, you know, quarter, the, the, the company and the Nigerian National Oil Company, the NNPC, the Nigerian National Petroleum Corporation, um, have signed an agreement allowing 20% um, NNPC participation in the Dangote refinery. Um, this is now being paid for outrightly in cash. Some of it will be forward payment in terms of crude oil supplied to, to the refinery um, by the Nigerian oil, um, state-owned oil company. Um, some of it um, would also be offset against um, you know, um, future profits um, that, that will be generated by this facility. And I think it's a win-win because um, the, the biggest risk in Nigeria is always the, on the governance side. Um, this sort of 20% state oil company, um, you know, um, holding a 20% stake in the Dangote refining facility, I think provides um, veritable, um, you know, political insurance um, for, for Mr. Dangote's investment. And I think um, it, it then puts Nigeria family in the cockpit with Mr. Dangote, put the Nigerian state family in the cockpit as co-owner um, and as, as, um, as joint stakeholder, wanting to ensure the success, the continuing success um, of this facility. I think that is inspired. It's not cost Nigeria too much because of the way the deal has been structured. Um, so I, I think, you know, it, it would it would help to continue that story I talked about of quite intimate, you know, engagement and understanding between industry player and those on the government, the regulatory side, uh, who as 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 is happening in the case of this um, refining facility, are now coming on board not just as regulator but as a minority um, co-owner. Um, in, in, in the project. So all of that is very exciting. And I think um, it almost makes the Nigerian push for domestic participation, particularly in the downstream sector, um, almost a virtual cycle, a self-sustaining virtual cycle now, um, where you have the largest um, refining facility anywhere in the world. It would supply the... Um, um, about the um, 350,000 barrel of refined petroleum that Nigeria needs daily. And the excess of that, um, I think, will serve a lot of the, um, the, the regional market, starting with West Africa and Central Africa, and hopefully um, increasingly um, the broader African continent. That alone will add about $5 billion annually to Nigeria's um, external reserve. And the money where we will no longer be spending re-importing re um, refined petroleum, that will be in the quantum about $12, and, uh, $12 billion annually. So that facility alone has the ability to help Nigeria conserve something in the region of 17 to 20 billion US dollars in external reserve annually. I think it will simply be a game changer, but it's a big heave if this facility can proceed to production 
um, without any nasty surprises, um, you know, further down the road. But I think um, from the look of things, um, they look set um, to, to become operational. And I think that will be a country maker for Nigeria, a complete game changer. And uh, despite all of the challenges um, and despite all of the well-known risk and concern that Nigeria presents many of us with, this may well emerge to be truly um, one of the really inspiring and sparkling um, economic uh, achievement and transformation story, not just for Nigeria and West Africa, and um, potentially for all of the African continent as we look to um, fully take advantage of the Africa continental free trade uh, you know, agreement, um, which, which has created so much excitement, so much opportunity for linkages across national border, borders, not just in the oil and gas sector, but a lot of the other related industries like cement, um, you know, um, automotive lubricants, um, you know, electricity generation and, um, you know, and, um, you know, um, um, monetization of, of gas resources. And I think the Dangote facility um, um, is simply um, a multi-nodal facility with the potential, um, I think, to help change the outlook across many of these sectors that I've, I've mentioned. And it would be exciting to see how Nigerian local content um, regulators um, support the players um, to try and help maximize um, these this, this advantages that I think are now well within our, within our grasp. That's wonderful. So I have, uh, there's a lot to talk about. I think I'll come back to you in due course because I think there's a case study here uh, that's really worth pursuing. And as I listen to you, many aspects of it, uh, you know, uh, come to, to the fore. But you are a man of governance. And, and so I need to respect that. And, and I need to be, uh, disclose my prior involvement. I used to advise the executive chairman of Lafayette, a man called Bruno Lafon, together with another team on sustainable uh, development issues. So I know the, the footprint of Lafayette Holson and uh, you know, they are, they are working in, in Nigeria and different parts of Africa. I must also say that I used to serve on uh, an industry advisory committee to uh, former President Goodluck Jonathan and his cabinet on these issues and, and would be at the table with Master Dangote and his competitors from Lafarge. And, and it was mm -hmm. a very healthy environment. So, so you, are, you are quite right in saying that the uh, marriage between industry and policymakers is a very important one if we are going to crack some of these uh, issues. And I think uh, whether it is in, in equity terms uh, through this facility or for that matter, the original uh, dispensation that enabled the cement industry to be transformed. And you could say Mr. Damgode has paid his dues uh, because you know, the investment made in that legislation by the federal government is, as you rightly say, what got us here. And unlike you, I'm not holding my breath. If you have the largest train in the world, if you have the technical issues of that, if you have the financial issues of that, if you have the politics of that, my brother, it's going to take time. 
and there's going to be I, a bit of bumpiness down the road. So I can deal with that, but I'm not holding my breath over whether we will cross the, the gateway. It's just a question of when. But I want to ask you one last question, because you mm. mentioned in an indirect way legacy issues. Mm. Whether it was uh, IOCs operating in the Delta uh, region and the politics of human rights or lack thereof, and then the challenges of the environment. Mm. And, and, but also you, you mentioned the selling off of very difficult geotechnical assets offshore to Nigerians. Now, when you put this together, are we potentially setting some indigenous firms for a fall? Because in effect, they're inheriting these legacy issues and that mm. your grandchildren and mine will not be here uh, to map the past, they will be looking at them and holding them to account. How in your mind can we make sure we transit from foreign ownership while at the same time uh, managing the legacy risk, if you wish? I think this is part of the logic um, behind um, the foreign, the former um, owners of this asset, the foreign oil majors, um, relinqu relinquishing control um, to Nigerian you know, companies, whom I seen anyway has been better attuned to some of the domestic dynamics and agitation that have much troubled um, the oil major operations onshore. Um, some of the players in the Nigerian oil industry are also skins. Um, of the Delta, you know, oil producing region. So these are people who know their way literally around the creeks um, of the Delta. And I think the fact that we've not had any major blow up or any major reputational blowback for them from domestic communities on, on degradation activities is partly to do with this, but it's also a question of the time horizon. I mean, they're relatively new. Um, incumbent, um, you know, in their role as owners of those assets now operating them. But the feeling is that they would do a much better job um, of navigating some of the um, the tricky um, local um, issues that have that have dogged um, foreign oil major operation onshore in Nigeria. So that's wonderful. Well. Ola, it was wonderful speaking with you. Thank you very much once again for joining the Sheila Kama Extractive Podcast. Thank you very much for having me.